Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. The field of philosophy has long been a really hostile environment for women. Feminist thought has been slow to infiltrate the significant back catalogue of ideas and theories that have shaped how we understand ourselves in Western societies. Until recent years, when students and contemporary thinkers have engaged with philosophy, which is often in academic settings, there's been limited exposure to women thinkers, and only recently has intersectional feminist thought been taking on the old masters. Later on this week's show, we'll hear from Emma McNichol on her exciting project, the Melbourne Centre for Feminist Philosophy. But this week's first guest, Catherine O'Donnell, is an Irish academic philosopher currently on a research trip to the University of Melbourne to look at the best ways to teach the skills of philosophy. And she's here to make connections between Irish and Australian feminist philosophers. She was the director of the Women's Studies Centre at University College Dublin for 10 years until she made the unusual move to the School of Philosophy, where she now lectures in the history of ideas and feminist and gender theory. I've only recently moved into philosophy, to be really honest and give kind of full disclosure. My background um, has been in English Lit, Cultural Studies and history of ideas, which, you know, some philosophers wouldn't really count as philosophy. Um, they would see it as on the margins of philosophy. But I've always taught feminist theory, and I've always taught, taught what I would call feminist philosophy. Well, bringing the margins a bit closer to the centre sounds a little bit like what we do on Women on the Line. <laughs> so it sounds like a good start. Um, but let's, let's really get back to the start. What is philosophy? You know, just an easy question to get you going. <laughs> There's a, a podcast that myself and an awful lot of people in philosophy love, which is um, uh, Philosophy Bites. Um, and it's uh, run in the UK by Nigel Warburton. And it's a question that he often asks the philosophers, the esteemed international philosophers who come and talk to him. Um, and the answers are, are extremely diverse. And quite often, a lot of philosophers just laugh with astonishment. Um because here they are practicing this this art, this craft, this science, this this fundamental discipline to the kind of Western way of organizing academia is, you know, philosophy is the kind of the mother discipline. Um, it, once you graduate from the kind of the highest possible um, degrees in universities, you're given a PhD, which is a doctorate in philosophy. Um, and a, a lot of philosophers just don't know how to answer it. For me, it's a really simple question because I've got a very simple answer and that is philosophy is a way of life. Um, the word of course means loving wisdom um, and if we love wisdom or if we love our life we are, we will want coordinates, we'll want principles, um, we'll want questions to guide us as well as some tips and answers about how to, how to look for those questions and understand them more deeply and that's what philosophy is. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. And what does that mean for you and the people you teach in a day-to-day -day sense? What are you asking of the people you teach? And what are you asking of yourself to live philosophically? Well, 
to live an examined life as opposed to the unexamined life, as Socrates would say, that's not worth living. So to examine our life. And I think many of the people who are listening into this particular radio show, of, of course, know how to do that. They're doing it already. So a lot of people do it. Some don't, but most of us do it. And it's how to do that better, how to love doing it and how to learn from it in order to live a life where you are flourishing and where the environment that you're in is left a bit better than when you entered it. Um, and philosophy is, the, if you like, the, the training ground for doing that better. It's the, the time out time where you begin to reflect on how you're doing where you're at, where you'd like to be, and how to get there in ways that mean that you expand on your happiness and that you, uh, you, I suppose you're trying to seek less suffering for yourself and less suffering for the environments around you. For me, that's what philosophy is. And And is, is that an intellectual exercise only? It's, okay, now you got me. It's an embodied exercise, and that's where feminism comes into philosophy, I think, because feminism, it, you know, the, the problem in Western philosophy since Descartes has been this kind of split between the mind and body. Kind of Western academia gives an awful lot of, so all, all the disciplines of our science and our arts privileges the mind and rationality and logic. And tends to think of, of all of the functions of our body um, as being less than. So so that's what academia is about. It's, a, it's about kind of, you know, people who are heads rather than people who are embodied human beings. Um, that's kind of the, the Western way of doing kind of intellectual work is with the head uh, and as distinct from kind of being even hooked up to the heart or certainly hooked up to a body. And we've had this kind of overprivileging of headwork um, in Western academia. But one of the things that feminism has done for academic disciplines in the West is to really challenge that distinction between head and body. Because, of course, our mind and body, I mean, honestly, like <laughs> the mind is embodied. Um, and they've pointed out that there's been a whole tradition in, in Western philosophy whereby the, the mind is, is male and the and it's you know can seek transcendence, can seek eternal truths, can find out the kind of reality of the universe, and the body is associated with all femininity, with femaleness, and it's imminent material, and in fact the thing that must be transcended or ignored in order to achieve greatness of of insight and intellect, and feminists challenge that because it's a gendered division, and it's been a way to dismiss women's potential to add to kind of figuring out the great questions of how we ought to live our lives and they've pointed out that this kind of false split between the mind and the body has actually led to um, uh, thin answers around how to live a good life and it's also led to a whole dismissal of actual realities in that we are embodied human beings. So Beauvoir, Simone de Beauvoir in The Second Sex, which she wrote um, in 1949, expressly met this head on and, and, and said that um, women being associated with the materiality of the body had led to, to their experiences and their insight being dismissed. So from then on, um, 
uh, feminists have followed Beauvoir to put the body back into thinking. Yeah, and is that, it, would Simone de Beauvoir been the first time that um, gender became named in that way in the field or would, did she have some predecessors that were quite strong or was that really a seminal point? It was a seminal point for kind of a major impact into academia, but no, as long as they've been thinking women and women were, who, who had access to writing, um, there were a strong feminist voice. So from the Middle Ages, we've had women pointing out the perniciousness of the gender divide as it's traditionally done. So in every century, you get a few women who've get access to some kind of forms of education, who get access to writing and who write what we would call proto-feminist or feminist tracks. Um, but with Beauvoir being so central in intellectual life in Europe and indeed in, in uh, being published in, in, in English and being uh, seen as one of the kind of great philosophical um, uh, people of mid-20th century um, philosophy, her work had an enormous impact and from it took a while and <laughs> um, so she wrote in 1949 it you really don't see any kind of feminist in English language expressly taking her up until maybe Betty Friedan and the um, Feminine Mystique book um, uh, at the end of the 60s so that really launched a big kind of um, American mass movement of feminism with the National Organization for Women, which Friedan founded. And from then on, you see who were young feminists at the time, Germaine Greer, Kate Millett, taking on Beauvoir's work and following in the template that, that she used. So to investigate how knowledge was already produced in the Western canon and to critique it for its gendered biases. And also to use both Marx and Freud, which wouldn't normally be brought together by in, in the academic tradition, to talk about how capitalism used gender to uh, further alienate women from their lives and their work, and how the socialization of girls created women, as, as Beauvoir famously said, one is not born, but one is made a woman. Um, so looked also at socialization. So looked at the major power structures of capitalism and critiqued that from a woman's point of view. And then also looked at socialization of girls in Western society and critiqued that. So Beauvoir prov provided the template that many other f others followed. Yeah, so it's really a lot of the ideas that we think about, of course, nowadays in Western feminism and in, you know, I suppose left politics in general that are so central and and. The thing about philosophy is that often you can trace these ideas back to certain thinkers, not that an individual is responsible for how these ideas move through mm -hmm. time. But it's it's interesting to hear you name a starting point for some of these these thoughts. Women on the line. I'm more interested in the 18th century. Um, and I suppose the kind of major big figure of the 18th century is uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, who's held by many to be the first feminist philosopher in, in kind of the English canon. So, you know, a good 150 years before Beauvoir. Um, and she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Man and also Vindication of the Rights of Woman. I'm interested in her for loads of reasons. Um, she's very, very radical in her view. So she wanted to change all of society um, and believe that was the best way to change gender relations. And I keep reading and rereading her, and I love to teach from her. 
But one of the things I'm kind of stuck on at the moment in looking at Mary Wollstonecraft, and you can see it right through into Beauvoir as well, is what has been called by other people feminist misogyny. And I'm interested in how feminists, and I'd have to include myself too in this, can be, I suppose, so toxified by patriarchy that we we have a misogyny, we have inherited a sexism whereby we are dissatisfied with the role and function of kind of socialization of women, but that can really leak into actually being dissatisfied with being women and having a huge anger against women and how most women, certainly traditional women, can behave within patriarchy. Just bring it to myself, my kind of my own sexism. I can be really uncomfortable with with kind of lots of forms of femininity. Um, I can see it as being too frivolous. I can see it as being too uh, vacuous, um, being kind of slaves to fashion, um, wanting the attention of men to to kind of get a sense of self worth. These are this is a script that's playing in my head that I can easily project onto younger women and other, you know, even women my age, middle age, as just, um, and it's, it's, it's my bias, it's my prejudice that's, that's kind of coming into certain forms of femininity and finding them uncomfortable. Um, that's where I see my sexism or what I'd call a feminist misogyny play out or being annoyed with women for not, not being feminist. Um, not understanding that the um, a lot of the um, pressures and a lot of the suffering that they endure is because of patriarchy and that they, they can't see it and won't name it. And I get really kind of cross about, well, certainly when I was younger, we'd get quite cross about that. Rather than actually seeing that a lot of the energy that I was putting into that was a way of dismissing traditional women's lives and the choices that they make. There's a great book by um, Andrea Dworkin that I recommend to everybody, and I try and go back and reread it myself. She's not somebody I read normally, but she's got a fantastic book called Right Wing Women that's very tender. Um, so she's one of the few feminists, I think, who doesn't fall into the trap, the second wave feminist, of femini- what I'd call feminist misogyny. And in that, she provides quite a corrective to thinking about traditional and even right-wing women's ways of, of being in the world. Um, so, yeah, that's one, a little project I have percolating at the moment, this kind of feminist misogyny. Yeah, really interesting. What other, um, even more broadly, what other areas of philosophy are being done from women's perspectives and feminist perspectives? Well, one of the kind of big breakthroughs in, in, say, the last 20 years has been analytic Anglo-American philosophy, which is forms of philosophy most practiced in America, Ireland, Britain, uh, Australia, would certainly be in the analytic school rather than the continental school that is r- drawing from French and German thinkers. They would instead be, be um, uh, much more rational and logical and work a lot in the area of philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. We've had some kind of major breakthroughs in that particular field with people like Sally Haslanger in MIT, uh, for example, um, 
who is writing within an analytic tradition, Ray Langton in the University of Cambridge, and asking feminist questions and and reworking the kind of the canon of Anglo-American uh, analytic philosophy to include questions around race, disability and gender and the, what we call intersectionality. And that's that's being that's excited an awful lot of interest from all philosophers within those particular fields. So that's been in one way coming from English lit you can see the kind of the revo- feminist revolution in 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 the tradition of philosophy happening quite a bit later than it has in other disciplines such as English and uh, history um but but it's coming through with real strength and fervor now women's on the line <laughs> oh, women on the line women on the line <laughs> <laughs> So there's work being done within philosophy to broaden the kind of traditionally conservative field to um, be inclusive of women and a range of minority groups. But I suppose it also looks like um, a lot of women and non-male gender people and different minority groups have really flourished in other areas of academia that may offer some of the same things philosophy does, such as anything from gender studies and cultural studies and, you know, kind of broader interdisciplinary projects. Is philosophy savable and and why not accept the energy that's been put into other areas? You know, I, I don't know how rare you are to move from literature and cultural studies into philosophy rather than the other way around. The movement looks to me like it's in the other direction. True. No, it is rare. Though I think it's it's good and I think everybody in their middle age who likes to think about things, you know, should move into philosophy. I recommend it. Um, I think the canon of philosophical writing is quite wonderful. Um, and yes, you're right. I was surprised about, you know, when I moved into the, the school, how much I'd actually already read. So it would be a shame if, if that great kind of canon of learning couldn't um, be reinterrogated by kind of fresh questions because they are wonderful thinkers. And also one of the, the kind of great challenges about kind of opening up to minority perspectives is that we get to rewrite and expand that canon as well. And that's working. Um, and that's work I'm, I'm involved in. And a lot of young feminists coming into philosophy and in philosophy are involved in societies of women in philosophy, the famous kind of SWIP orbit organization that we get in America and Ireland and England. But they're also founding a very new movement called Minorities in Philosophy Map. And you see um, many of these chapters opening up all over the world, wherever they're young thinking feminists, certainly. Because we need not just that women's questions, issues, embodied perspective kind of comes into the field and, and asks how best should we what are the best rules and ways of thinking so that we can flourish as individuals and in communities? But we need a really broad base of people who are bringing their wisdom into asking those questions and, and, and giving us answers and showing us how how this can be kind of communally and consensually kind of done. And we have an urgent question, which is our planet is going to die unless we cop on. We are wrecking the kind of the, the planet that we're on. So we really need to think together. We really need to think together about how we flourish as humans within 
our embodied lives and within the kind of on the planet that that we're we're managing to or certainly kind of capitalist patriarchy is managing to wreck so we urgently need minorities and philosophy That was Catherine O'Donnell from University College Dublin, currently on a research trip to the University of Melbourne. Emma McNichol has set up the Melbourne Centre for Feminist Philosophy. After her work with ideas around exclusion, led her to want to create a space where philosophy is feminist in both theory and practice. I was inspired by the participants at a course I was teaching, a couple of courses I was teaching in 2017 and 2018, and I realised there's this real hunger for a kind of deeper and more theoretical feminist engagement. I think uh, within, um, I think particularly this kind of proliferation of social media feminism, um, it has a wide, it can kind of cast a wide net, but people kind of can't get their teeth stuck into it. And I noticed this just huge volume of women who are hungry, hungry to understand, um, to get a kind of richer engagement with the history of theoretical feminism and to debate and talk about these ideas in a kind of academic but also uh, kind of friendly space. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll start this centre and, and, and try to um, have it kind of not just um, dealing with feminist content and feminist ideas, but have it kind of organised in a feminist way. The, the centre is, it's, it's, not, it's at the moment uh, not a physical centre. We're, we're running it out of the Kathleen Syme, well, the events that we've had so far, out of the Kathleen Syme Community Centre, which is in Carlton in Melbourne. But we're, it's, you know, because it's an educational space, it's women, um, it can be early career academics or um, more established academics, presenting lectures or we call them seminar workshops because it seems a little bit more collaborative and a little bit more relaxed um, and because it's not I guess the, the term lecture isn't really accurate anyway because it suggests the kind of didactic dynamics that we don't really want to have we want um, the idea is to have clear accessible and fun uh, explanation or exposition on kind of key feminist ideas key feminist texts and, and uh, key uh, thinkers in the, in the Western or Eastern, but we haven't done any of those yet, um, philosophical tradition. Yeah. You mentioned already that you work with early career academics in particular and women lecturers predominantly. Yeah. Well, totally. So, I mean, philosophy as it stands has been an exclusionary tradition. It's excluded women. And then even when philosophy started taking into account um, and in a more mainstream way and these texts started being disseminated um, and looking at women's oppression, we then, feminists were then excluding women of colour. You know, it's, it seems to be this kind of ongoing issue with it. So the centre is aiming in as many ways as possible to be inclusive. So social, we, we aim to be socially inclusive, to have a space that's, um, of course, wheelchair accessible and a space where we can do whatever we can for people attending with, with various needs. It's also in, designed to be inclusive to children and mothers. The, and I tell anyone who's presenting a seminar, kind of be ready. Um, <laughs> toddlers might be there. And we've had some come, and I think it's really fun. It's also designed to have, I think, one of the elements of inclusivity isn't about dumbing it down. It, um, it's We aim to have really high quality instruction, so lots of visual aids. I'm, I'm a trained secondary school teacher, and I think that in a lot of respects, 
high school teachers um, kind of can be held to higher pedagogical standards than academics. So it's making sure that the academics that we bring in are really uh, focused on presenting really clearly uh, um, with visual aids, with sound and with videos. We're trying to make it uh, not, not, yeah, not dumb it down, but just have it totally accessible and lucid, and also fun and engaging. Because you know, getting your teeth stuck into philosophy is fun. It is interesting, and it and it and the way that um, philosophical spaces um, are often run can be pretty macho, and they can be pretty intimidating, or they can just be boring. So it's kind of trying to make it a little bit more. Uh, you know, interesting and colourful, I suppose. And it'd be good to get a sense of what topics and what areas has the centre been looking at over the last few years? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so we had um, earlier in 2018, I mean, we're nearly in 2019, aren't we? So earlier um, in 2018, we had... um, the early career researcher Rebecca Harrison and she did um, a really interesting seminar looking at the presumption of innocence in sexual um, violence cases and how maybe uh, the presumption of innocence isn't a kind of isn't strong enough uh, that you know that, that that this could have some relationship to the kind of low conviction rates that we have for sexual violence. We recently also had Associate Professor Jackie Broad from Monash. Jackie spoke about the 17th century. Oh, sorry, 18th, well, 1700s. <laughs> and so she spoke on Mary Astle, who she's an expert on, and talked about um, Astle, uh, was, whether Astle was able to kind of successfully negotiate her faith with her... Uh, with with autonomy and that was extremely interesting and it's still and I mean what's really interesting in in Broad's in Jackie's presentation and in a lot of them is that when we look at these historical questions like is this is was Mary Astor able to successfully negotiate her faith which was telling her that she had to be submissive to the church submissive to her husband with autonomy which she also thought was important and we look, and we can plug that immediately into contemporary debates we find in uh, in uh, the western media a lot of people saying um, saying, you know, oh, well, can Muslim women even have autonomy, you know? And, and I, I think that's a deplorable position. And But, I mean, I think that uh, there's always these... The history of feminism has these recurring themes. And the history of feminist philosophy, we can always plug it in again and see, oh, wow, how is this, this question, you know, the intersection, in this case, the intersection of autonomy and faith, how is this playing up or what's going on with this today? Anyway, in 2019, um, in early January, we've got um, the lovely Catherine O'Donnell, from University College Dublin. She'll be presenting. Um, I'm going to be running a course on intersectionality and um, black feminism. And hopefully we've got Louise Richardson-Self from the University of Tasmania, and I'm pretty sure she's going to be speaking about um, hate speech and street, uh, yeah, street harassment. You've been listening to feminist philosophy academics and teachers Catherine O'Donnell and Emma McNichol on the meeting of feminist thought and traditional philosophy. To learn more about the Melbourne Centre for Feminist Philosophy and to find out when Catherine is speaking with them early next year, check out mcfphilosophy.com and see more on the Women on the Line program page on 3cr.org.au.